Thank you, Stu, very much. Well, good morning, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It is joyful to see everyone here. See the Lord's house full today does my heart good. I hope it does yours as well. It's a blessing indeed to gather and celebrate. Of course, you know, every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. We, we uh, note that resurrection on the first day of the week as we gather together to worship. But uh, this day, of course, is a particular time when we sort of put all of that together and particularly note it. So uh, we are uh, just delighted to see everyone here today. Those who are visiting, welcome. Those who are with us online, welcome to you as well. We're uh, continuing on in uh, our study of the life of David, which may seem to be a bit odd to you on Resurrection Sunday. And indeed, I was thinking about actually switching things up and just doing a you know, a resurrection type of sermon. Uh, But in God's providence, coming to this particular passage, uh, there are some particular things that I think you will see as we go along that make it most appropriate to talk about on Resurrection Sunday. Um, And if if it's a little subtle to begin with, eventually I'll make it really plain. But uh, this is... uh, uh, a wonderful passage. It's one that is familiar to all of us, and that is in 1 Samuel 17. Yeah, my apologies that the bulletin was wrong. I caught it after I'd already printed it, of course. So yeah, we're, we're not talking about revival today, at least uh, not specifically. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 17. And as I read this passage, it's a little longer uh, passage, but I want you to get the, the full scope of it. Not that probably... I can't imagine that there are too many people here that have never heard this story before and don't know it well. But let's uh, stand, if you're able, as I read read 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 12. Hear God's holy word. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man uh, in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make him and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. 
When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine should be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and Yahweh be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So there's always a risk when you're preaching a passage that, uh, about which you know, everybody knows and has heard umpteen times that uh, everybody will just go, well, I can think about something else because I've heard this uh, many times before. I pray that you will not do that today. Uh, we're going to look at this perhaps from a little different perspective than you may have uh, had a chance to look at it before. Perhaps not. And hopefully it will be a blessing, a fresh blessing to you, even though it's a familiar, very familiar passage. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible, even to those that uh, are not in the Christian faith. Uh, most everybody's heard about uh, David and Goliath, and uh, we're, we're used to talking about uh, looking at the giants that face us, and all that kind of terminology comes from this story. Well... Maybe that's not surprising because I got a news flash for you. Ready? Life is hard. 
What? You're not surprised. Well, it is, though. And much of human history is the record of how people attempted to deal with that hardness in life. They may try to do it, uh, uh, deal with the hardness that comes with the challenge to, to our physical safety, uh, gaining of territory or possessions, or the challenge of hanging on to them, perhaps, financial security, dependable relationships, and so on. We find hardness in all of those areas, in fact, in every aspect of human life, don't we? These things all relate to us, whether it's just individuals, uh, communities, nations. We, we, can, we can see that throughout human history, that these, to, one, to a greater or lesser degree, all have impact upon us. And in most of human history, I would say, people have been looking for a savior, been looking for a champion, Someone who will handle the hardness for them. Someone who will make everything right. World religions are all about the imaginations of people in action, concocting a champion who would do the deed and save us all. A politics. Does that sound familiar? Politics are all about, we got to elect this guy or gal because they're going to save us. If we get them in office, that's our, our problems are over. We will enter a utopia. You think after, you know, several thousand years, we'd figure out that that never works. But nonetheless, we keep trying. We're looking for that kind of champion. But Yahweh works differently, doesn't he? He doesn't see greatness among men the way that we do. And he has surprised us throughout history again and again by raising the least likely individuals to be his servants and accomplish his will. And our account today is one such example. Remember, David, yes, he had been anointed to be king. Pretty cool thing for a young man in his late teens in all probability. Uh, but nonetheless, Yahweh's choice of the next king is relatively obscure from a small town, uh, son of a man who ha perhaps had some prominence there in Bethlehem, but as far as the rest of Israel is concerned, nobody's ever heard of anybody, uh, of, of any of them. He may have had, he did have some credentials, and that would be that he was uh, of the tribe of Judah. We know from the tribe of Judah, it had been prophesied that the king would come. David's of the tribe of Judah. Great. Okay. But those kind of credentials aren't going to impress anybody else in Judah because they're all part of the tribe of Judah too. It could be me. Right? No. There was nothing about David really that would impress his countrymen, much less the enemy. Maybe a few people knew of his exploits with the lion and the bear perhaps and knew he could sing a little bit. Remember, he did get a pretty good reference from one of the Saul's servants. Uh, about uh, David's uh, characteristics and abilities, but the enemy sure doesn't care about that. And here you have two nations squared off against each other, and for 40 days, the giant that we spent some time looking at last week, Goliath, the walking tank, uh, every time he came the armies would come together like they're going to do something. Lots of shouting. Then Goliath would show up and Israel would turn tail and run. So actually the author of 1 Samuel is being kind when he says that Israel was fighting the Philistines. Israel was going up and you know brandishing spears and pounding their chests and making a lot of noise, but nothing really was happening. Yahweh chooses champions a little bit differently. And he goes by his own criteria for his champions to win his battles, as we shall see. So let's take a look at this surprise champion of Yahweh. He holds an unlikely position. Verses 12 through 15 indicate uh, David's life situation. This he's 
One of the most unlikely ones of all. Later on, when David is king, and we'll see this as we get on further into the accounts, David amassed quite an army and had talked about some of the exploits of his chief men. Some pretty bad dudes. Those guys would not want to meet them in a dark alley. They were, they were tough. But here's David, um, this little shepherd guy from a little town, and certainly, surely, in the ranks of Israel's armies, there were experienced fighters, men who had many kills to their, to their record, men, men who had exploits and names of their own that, that, that could have been chosen, that could have stepped forward, perhaps, to say, yeah, I'll take on the Philistine. But none of them did. And I think it's odd that Saul didn't even appear to even recruit anybody to go do it. I, just waiting for somebody to step up, and I guess not, there's a few holes in the, the narrative, but it does seem rather odd. So David comes up and says, uh, "I'll take this on," but they just look at him and go, "You know, who are you?" I, Saul again shows incredible, incredible uh, lack of awareness. He's been having this kid come in and play for him and drive away the depressive demons that just plagued him and appreciate him. He's going back and forth between the court, but it's like apparently the equivalent of somebody turned the, turned the radio on for him. Wasn't paying any attention to the singer. Didn't know who he was. Didn't know what was going on. Mr. Oblivious. And Jesse, his father is getting old. Perhaps he did have a, uh, a position of influence at one time, at least in Bethlehem, but I would say that, that the, the discussion about his age and, and so on would indicate that his, his prime time was fading. So David doesn't even have you know, a famous father. His father's waning in his influence. He's... Uh, an unlikely champion because he's the youngest in the family. And that is really pointed out very strongly here. That the oldest are out there fighting. Why they didn't step up, I don't know. We'll talk a little bit more about Eliab in a minute. But David's the youngest. Everybody else should have their chance first. Um, and uh, I put this next phrase in quotes. Unlikely because he was just a... A seasonal worker. Anybody ever been a seasonal worker? Done part-time work? Um, how much respect do you get as a seasonal worker and a part-timer? Um, some, in some companies, anyway, you don't get a lot. Right, so here's David. He's not, a full, he's not full-time in the army. In fact, he's not in the army at all. He's a shepherd part-time. And he's a, a, you know, a human radio part-time. And doesn't get a whole lot of respect. Doesn't have as far as what Saul or anybody else in Israel thought were, were uh, you know, a list of accomplishments. Didn't seem like very much. Unlikely champion. He's the only son of a servant. And this is really made a point of in verse 12. And it bookends this whole thing. It's one reason why I wanted to read the whole thing. I know it's a long passage, but I wanted you to get the bookend. It starts off with son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the servant of Saul. And then at the end, I'm the son of, the, of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. It bookends this whole passage. The emphasis upon David as this lowly servant, particularly for those of you that were here last week, as we were talking about Goliath in all of his glory and all of his in, in, impressive uh, uh, abilities and strength and wealth and everything else that's there. The comparison is stark, and I don't believe that that is an accident. Because Yahweh chooses champions that, to our minds, are often quite unlikely. But this champion of, of Yahweh's, David, possesses unexpected courage. And we see this in verses 16 through 37, the, the, the 
main part of the, the building to the climax of this story. This courage is unexpected because of his assigned duties. He's an errand boy. Nobody expects the errand boy to step up and go to the king and go, hey, I'll kill this guy for you. Nobody expected it at all. He was just there to fetch and carry. He was there to bring some bread, bring some cheese, bring some grain, do some other things like that. Just, you know, bring some news back home. He was there assigned to do nothing that was very important, at least as far as anybody else would rate it. And also unexpected, and this is kind of related to his duties, but it has to do with his his relationship to the conflict itself. David was not sent, even as an errand boy, to go carry armor to his, his brothers, for example, or anything like that. He wasn't given instruction to do anything concerning the battle. His relationship to the conflict was simply to go, see how his brothers were doing, and go home. He was merely an observer as far as anybody could tell. He's on the periphery. Didn't seem to be centrally involved. I mean, what would he know? He shows up. This has been going on a long time. Long enough for word to get back to Jesse that, oh, I might want to reprovision my sons. Might want to send a gift to their commanding officer. And they have time to do that. Bethlehem's on the other side of the mountains. And this battle's kind of in the foothills leading towards the plains, leading towards uh, Philistia. So it would have been a eh, probably a couple day trip at least. And what's David going to know when he shows up? In fact, he's going around and he's asking, what's happening? And people are happy to tell him. And the more that they tell him this, the more angry he gets at the blasphemy and the arrogance, which we looked at before, of Goliath. But, you know, little thought here. Leaving, uh, leaving the battle to the professionals wasn't working. You, we're going to talk about David's humility here in a minute, and there's things, as I read this, you may have thought, Ooh, that took some cheek to say. But David said those things because of his understanding of and his relationship to his God. It, it was personal. The personal insult to his God, he took personally. So it wasn't a matter of him being arrogant. He is, he's hearing the, the hubbub going on about and seeing what's going on with this Philistine and just is looking around saying, why is nothing being done? Why are we standing here with our thumbs in our mouths instead of going out and doing what we need to be doing? The, the professional soldiers were not doing much of anything. You know, uh, quite a few years ago, uh, when I was uh, directing our mission board, I got a, I got a, a phone call from Australia um, I get calls from overseas every once in a while. A lot of times people were looking for money or something else. This particular uh, guy I was talking to was not so much looking for money, but looking for association, looking for connection with a, a faithful denomination, a reformed denomination. And we started to talk. This was a, I don't remember the name of it, which is just as well, uh, but a small organization, association there in Australia. There's probably a reason why it was small. It's I think will become clear to you. But one of the, the things that he's, he asked me the question, um, who do you think should uh, witness for the Lord Jesus? Which I thought was, when he asked me the question, I thought it was the most bizarre question I'd ever heard. And I said, well, you know, let's see, there's the priesthood of the believer concept. There's the commands to, you know, declare his glories among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Uh, 
you know, all of us have an obligation to stand as ambassadors for the king. And he began to argue with me. He said, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's wrong. The only ministers are, are to be witnesses. Hence, they're a small denomination. <laughs> uh, rabbit trail reminds me of a little cartoon in the calendar that we used to have in the seminary lounge. Huge church, tiny congregation right in front. You can see it's like a palatial place and there's like a handful of people down front and the pastor standing up and saying, the Lord calls us to evangelism. And the bank that holds our mortgage has mentioned it too. There's an aspect of, we think that we leave it up to the professionals. We think, well, that's the pastor's job. That's the elder's job. That's the missionary's job. We're just kind of slogging through and doing our thing. Taking that mentality was rank in Israel. And it was a convenient one because it relieved them of any responsibility for truly engaging the enemy. It's all right to talk about it. It's all right, again, to, to shout the battle cry. But the first time uh, the, the oppressor comes, we turn tail and run. And look at Eliab's response. Eliab, the eldest, he should have been the one to go, you know what, David, you're right. And even if he doesn't say, I'm going to go do it. Hey, tell you, Goliath was no walk in the park. Chances were pretty good that whoever went up against him was either going to die or get really hurt one way or the other. But at least he could have said, let's put together a team. Let's go overwhelm this guy. Let's do something else because of what he was saying, because of the reproach against the God of Israel. But what does Eliab do? He starts berating and demeaning David. Doesn't have any respect for him whatsoever. Wants to show that he's the big man instead of David. We're those few sheep in the wilderness. You're, you're not even, you're not, it's not just that you're a shepherd. You're a shepherd of nothing. What are you doing here? And David's question King James has it, is there not a cause? Uh, but, or is, you know, is there not something worth talking about? Basically, we might say, I just asked the question. You know, it's an interesting thing. The courage of the Lord's champions is often misrepresented and misinterpreted by the timid or the narrow-minded who seek to justify their own inactivity. You ever notice that? A friend of mine loves to say, no good deed shall go unpunished. And usually that punishment comes from those that don't like whatever good deed was done or they don't like the person who was doing it. And so in order to justify themselves, they personally attack um, the person who's doing whatever. And sometimes, like in this case here, David asks a question, what's going to be done? What's, what is this? Sometimes a simple question like that is all it takes to prick the conscience of those who are doing nothing. That's where Eliab was. He was doing nothing, along with everybody else who was doing a whole lot of nothing. I mean, here, we don't expect this little shepherd boy to do anything. Why should he be so worked up when we're not? He's just an observer. Let's keep him there where he belongs. Well, this is also unexpected. Uh, this courage that comes with, from uh, David is unexpected because of his relative uh, inexperience, or you could say because of his experience or lack thereof. The, the idea, of course, is that he's not a warrior. He's never been in an army. Saul doesn't even know if he's even carried a sword before, even though he straps one on him. Uh, it's kind of like around here. It's like, oh, you know, want to be a cop? Okay, here, 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 here's your gun belt and a badge. Go for it, man. To somebody who has no experience, at least that anybody knows about. Would be, we would look at that and go, that's pretty irresponsible. Wouldn't we? Yet that's essentially what Saul did here. But nobody expects this boy. I, mean, I think, I mean, just the fact that Saul did this 
I, I've often thought, what in the world was he thinking? Essentially, he, was, he just signed David's death warrant, as far as anybody knows. You know, apart from God's intervention, that's what he did. Even knowing that David doesn't have the experience that Goliath has. He's like, well, okay, let's equip you. And when he equips him, it's like he equips him according to his understanding of what's going to be effective. It doesn't make any sense because it's only might be effective in somebody who actually maybe is trained. David's got none of that. Or so they think. Look what it says there in 31 through 37. David is not worried about, I mean, he, he recognizes that uh, he's not there to do things the way that Saul and everybody else was there to do things. He knows he wasn't equipped for that. He knows, but however, he knows that he was equipped in a different way. And so he recounts. You know, we often think of, because of the, the account kind of goes back and forth between plural and singular. When you think of David guarding the sheep, you think of, well, he killed a lion and killed a bear. That's generally how, you know, it gets distilled down in Sunday school and etched in our mind that he killed a lion at some point and he killed a bear at some point. Impressive enough, okay? I'm not <laughs> minimizing that at all, but it's plural. Whenever this happened, I've killed lions and bears. And every time, God has delivered him. His experience is of a different kind. Now, if you put it, you know, we, we think of that, you know, he wasn't killing kitty cats. Okay. Lions and bears are several times more powerful, muscularly speaking, than men are. Much more agile, much more uh, quick in their reflexes. And there are all kinds of things on them that, that hurt. And David, I love this. He goes in and he says, I take him by the beard. That, that means that he's not standing off here at a safe distance, lobbing things at them. He gets up a close and personal with these creatures that could rip him open and he slays them. Saul had to be listening to this going, it, probably um, trying to figure out if this kid was for real or if he was just blowing smoke. But there must have been something about the way David communicated those stories and particularly in the fact that he accounted all of those victories to the Lord's handiwork and not his own. That's all said, okay, go for it. Go for it. I mean, finally, there's some courage in this army. I think that's what caught Saul's attention, probably. Saul, who himself was acting in a cowardly way, nobody else is stepping up. And here... David must have been asking about this a lot because the word got back to Saul that there's this guy out there that wants to take Goliath on. So he gets brought before him. But were those words enough? When Saul heard about them, I bet though he was pretty disappointed by what he saw when David walked into the tent. A mere lad in his eyes. Not a mighty warrior to match those powerful words. But again, experience comes in all sorts of packages. David's was uniquely suited to prepare him to face seemingly insurmountable foes. He knew what it meant to trust God to enable him to do the needful. Look what he says there in verse 37. The Lord, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. No doubts in David's mind at all. He knew what he was there to do. So he's unlikely and he's unexpected 
But uh, Yahweh's champion demonstrates some pretty uncommon skills, particularly in one so young. Verses 38 through the end of the passage demonstrate those skills in a couple of different ways. We're used to thinking of the, the skill, which we'll talk about uh, with the sling, of course, but there's more to his skills than that. First of all, uh, and don't, maybe you don't often think of this as a skill, call it a characteristic, call it something that, that uh, enables you to, do, uh, to, to make the most of your skills if you want, but he was uncommon in his humility. I've mentioned that before. Verses 38 and 39, when Saul says, okay, here's my armor. And it's interesting, right? We talked about Goliath's armor last week, all of bronze. And we talked about how expensive bronze was at that time as an indication of Goliath's wealth. Well, Saul's got the bronze armor too. He's got at least a, a bronze helmet, puts that on there. That, that's promising. Right? And then a coat of mail, which could very well have been bronze, doesn't say, but uh, likely, probably was. But he takes these, these things and he, he puts them on David. And David looks at this. Uh, I, I think a lot of times we get this idea that you know, we have David as a boy in our mind. So we just sort of, when we see him in Saul's armor, we tend to think of him you know, like the little kid who's wearing his dad's jacket, you know. No. No. David, um, though he didn't have the stature probably of Saul, remember Saul was a big guy. He was head and shoulders above everybody in Israel when he was uh, crowned king. Remember that? You get the idea that David was fairly tall. Um, now, they didn't wear pants in the same way, so they didn't have to worry about inseams so much. Uh, but as far as the male coat and everything else, this is a kid who wrestles lions and bears. Um, he's got some physical strength. He's not this puny little guy, you know, who's, who the sleeves of the male shirt are dragging on the ground. Saul is not an idiot. He might be cowardly, but he's not an idiot. If he puts those things on, there's a reasonably good fit, I would say which says something about David's stature. But there's one thing, it's one thing to put on the clothing, it's another thing to be able to use them. Kind of the equivalent today of, you know, people who aren't cowboys wearing cowboy hats and wearing, and wearing boots and thinking that they're cowboys. It takes more than putting on the hat, right? <coughs> but think about it. Now here's this, here's a young man who's been anointed to be king. Even if he wasn't anointed to be king, what, you know, 18, 19-year-old wouldn't want, think it would be pretty cool to put on the king's armor? Looking pretty buff there, dude. We'd like that. And to think in David's mind, this armor might be mine one day. But there's none of that. David... It, he's wearing this stuff and it's like you, when you're wearing you know we think oh it's a male shirt we're so used to looking at movies with you know knights and so on Lord of the Rings all that and you look at these guys and all how they're moving around and they've got the mail and, all, and they it seems like they're made out of rubber I mean you can just kind of do all this stuff you know you Anybody here ever worn body armor? A few of you have. Isn't it fun to move around in? Oh, it's great stuff. Yeah, when we train, um, we train with it on because uh, pulling a sidearm, wearing that, and putting it back where it belongs and everything else is different when you're armored up. Your, your center of balance is off. Things are in the way. It's heavy. Yeah. All of that stuff. So David is putting this stuff on that he's never had on in his life. That's what's going on here. Uh, that he's like, you know, I'm, not, I'm liable to cut my own head off. Uh, pulling this sword out, trying to get it out, get it hung up on something, whatever else. He's like, I haven't tested it. I can't use this. 
David had humility enough to go, you know what? I know when I walk out there against that guy with no armor on, no sword, which a point is made of it here, that I'm going to get laughed from here to the other side of Israel. Not only by Goliath, but by everybody in the army. He goes, well, there's another pit squeak down. But David had humility before God that he knew what God had called him to do and he went out anyway, even though as far as the world was concerned, he was grossly ill-equipped. Made me think of the verse, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. David seemed to understand that. He was uncommon in his faith. And I see this in the stones. Uh, someone asked me, you know, what's the significance of the five stones? And I've heard people talk about the number five, and it can be the, the sign of grace and so on. And I'm like, well, that stone wasn't very gracious to Goliath, for sure. Um, why five? I don't know. I don't really care. Uh, but I would sort of think that uh, it probably had to be, you know what? Uh, as skillful as David clearly was, he might realize that he's not perfect and he might miss. He might want to have some backup ammo. Um, so he went prepared. He had, he had faith to prepare, though, with the means at hand. With what he knew, with what God had, had equipped him with before, what God had enabled him to do his work with before, he trusted in the Lord and trusted in, okay, here's some, here's some, uh, here's some stones that will suit the purpose. I'm going to trust into these things that the Lord has provided. And he had the faith to approach in spite of the danger that was there. And the danger was very real. Very real. And yet, he had the faith to approach. And when you read this account, you probably, as we read this, you probably noticed that David wasn't dragging his feet, was he? He was steadily marching forward. And, and as the time came, it wasn't just that he quickened his pace. He ran to meet the Philistine. That takes faith. And the, uh, David understood that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. And so because of that, he was uncommon in his boldness. He had no threat, no problem with the threats of God's enemy at all. He knew God uh, is greater. And no, and this is where you look at it and go, okay, that's quite a claim, David. He boldly proclaims what he's going to do. He's going to remove Goliath's head. And he, and when he says he, I'm going to give the, the bodies of the Philistines, he means in the context of the whole army, um, that the Philistines are going to be defeated. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He doesn't go, I'm really hoping so. I'm praying that God will do this. He says, this is what's going to happen. That's how confident he was in his Lord. Because he knew, verse 47, that the battle is Yahweh's wasn't his. And uncommon in his expertise, with that sling, that sling would be equivalent of, you know, our the kid's slingshot that we have. But uh, it was a useful tool for a shepherd because you would use that to drive away predators and that sort of thing. Maybe even get, if you do it a little lighter, you can bounce one off of a sheep. They don't really feel much anyway. Even if it's in the head, it's rather thick. Uh, but it might get their attention a little bit to go, hey, pay attention, buddy, you need to be over here. But it was a useful tool. There weren't very many vulnerable spots on Goliath. Remember we talked about that before? Really, the only vulnerable spots on Goliath would be maybe some bareness on his arms, which if a rock hit it might go, you know, ow, but it's not going to be enough for him to go, oh, I think I'm going to quit now. You know, he's not going to do it. Um, and really about the only vulnerable part that would actually hurt him was right here. And David hit it first time, sunk it into his forehead, which says David had some strength. He, he put a dent 
in, in Goliath's forehead. And Goliath went down. What does this imply? It implies that he practiced. You know, sometimes when we are facing our giants, we're going in there cold turkey. We don't know how to use God's word because we haven't been using it. We don't know how to use prayer because we haven't been using it. We don't know how to use the fellowship of the church because we haven't been using it. And then we wonder why we're unsuccessful in standing our ground against temptation or having a voice that counts for something in the communities in which we live. David practiced. And then finally, he was uncommon in wisdom. He understood how to finish the job. Of course, there was the cutting off of Goliath's head. He had to make good on that declaration. He didn't get all excited. He could glide down and start dancing around. He had enough wisdom to go, okay, got to finish the job. Got to finish the job. He didn't have a sword, so he had to go get one. The closest one was on Goliath. Now, we talked about that sword last week. Uh, probably two to three feet long. It's a short sword. It was for close work. It was not a great big old huge thing like we often think Goliath might have had. Short swords were just for short, close-in work. And, that's, and David went and picked that one up. Um, and that's, that's a great thing. He did that. But notice that he also claimed the armor. He ended up taking the armor to his tent. Like I said, there's about a couple hundred uh, pounds worth of armor. So David was not a slouch physically. Not that he wanted to wear all that stuff, but that's a whole pile of money sitting on the ground there. And uh, that could very well be used to finance many other things down the road. It doesn't, we're never, we never hear about Goliath's armor after this except the sword, but uh, uh, probably helped David finance some of the things that he did later on. Just a guess. Had some wisdom to thinking that at least that somehow that might be reused or remade uh, to suit his own purposes when the time was right. He was wise enough not to be boasting. Saul had to go find him. That must have been a sight. Finds him, and he's still carrying the head of the giant with him. David didn't make any grandiose claims for himself. He gave the glory to God. I think the trophy of the head probably spoke loudly enough that what he had said about God's faithfulness to him was true. So, that's great. That's all about David. What do we do with all of that? Well, last week, we saw the importance of doing more than just showing up. Saul was showing up. The people of Israel were gathering, but they weren't doing anything. There needed to be something else done in the face of the enemy. And in this part of the account, the importance of doing more than just showing up is seen even more clearly. David was pressed into service of enormous significance while faithfully going about doing the more mundane tasks that he had been called to do. And notice, he was no mere errand boy even at that. He was a man who knew his God. He knew how to talk about God. He knew what offended God. And he knew what needed to be done. Furthermore, he was a man who was unafraid of the giant in front of him because of long experience of doing God's work and seeing God's deliverance. Saul was going through the motions. David set out to do the actual job. And in spite of all that, no one expected him to be there. No one expected him to defend anything and certainly not to succeed. In fact, he was mocked by those closest to him for daring to even be curious about what might be done. But Yahweh chooses his champions according to his standards, not man's, no matter how surprising that choice might be to us. Though he was offered greatness as men measure it, his primary concern was for the honor of Yahweh. And secondarily, he wisely planned for the future. Think about that armor again. And note the transformation that took place in the armies of Israel when the champions stepped forward and accomplished the defeat of the enemy. Courage came in place of fear. Action came instead of hesitating. On this day, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That historical fact, which is at the core of true Christianity, took place because our Lord, who was despised and mocked because he did not add up to his contemporaries' idea of what the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Champion, should be. Courageously, with faith in his Father's commands, out of the obscurity of his human parentage, boldly and humbly undertook the giants of sin and death and Satan. And he prevailed. By conquering death and hell, he crushed the serpent's head. He secured the deliverance of his people for all eternity. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. And his victory, even as you look in the Gospels, not to mention in all the centuries since, his victory emboldened his disciples to go out and take on the world. David certainly set a pattern for us that we can recognize very clearly in our Savior. Okay? Now what about you? There are indeed enemies to fight. Life truly is hard. It's too easy for us to look around us for a champion when the Lord may very well be placing you at the front lines. Do not let the sad words that Ezekiel penned be true of you. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. I mean, the world may very well be su surprised at your courage and skill. I hope you're practicing. Your skill to oppose it, whether it's in your own heart, the world in your own heart, or it's in your community. They might be surprised, but greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. The world might find cause to mock you because you, by God's grace, withstand temptation and compromise with the puny weapons of prayer, the word, worship, and yes, witness. It may seem too great a thing for you to take up the sword of the Lord and slay the enemy of sin. But beloved, grasp that sword and swing hard. Your Savior's already won the battle. Be bold and let your boldness and confidence in the victory of Christ spur others on to fight the fight of faith as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this account of David and Goliath. Thank you, Lord, that by your grace and with your power, he withstood a fearsome enemy and showed us how it's done by trusting in you, using the skills and the experience that you give to us, whatever the world thinks of them. Lord, let us boldly run to meet the the enemies of our souls and of your church and apply your word to the situation so that we will watch those giants fall. Thank you, Lord God, for the blessing that is ours because we know that Jesus has already won. Lord, let us live confidently in that victory. In Christ.